I raised my prices when I went there and they sold better with me raising my prices. Welcome to the Passionate Painter Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Italia Carlson. Whether your art is a full-time career or your side gig, if you are passionate about creating art, this podcast is for you. Don't worry about taking notes. I'll do that for you. And you can find them at passionatepainterpodcast.com. I'm pleased to announce, due to popular demand, I've broken out my Portrait Code Masterclass into individual spotlight classes in design, composition, perspective, color theory, anatomy, mixing skin tones, and a standalone portraiture demonstration. The courses on the fundamentals of design, composition, perspective, and color theory will strengthen your art whether your focus is on making abstract, landscape, figurative, or portrait painting. And the courses on anatomy, skin tones, and the portrait demonstration will help figurative and portrait artists. There are also two bundles that each combine two of the popular standalone spotlight courses for one fantastic price. Look for these new individual spotlight courses on August 1st, 2022 at passionatepainteracademy.com. And if you're looking for the whole package, the complete Portrait Code Masterclass is still currently available at passionatepainteracademy.com and includes three modules not found in the other courses. One on building confidence as an artist, one on how to grid, and one crammed full of bonus material. So whether you're looking for one or two focused lessons or an entire masterclass, you can find it all at passionatepainteracademy.com. Welcome to part two of my interview in progress with painter Brenda Robinson. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that first to hear Brenda's bio, how she got started as an artist, and much more. You can find it at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 77. So there's some interesting things you said in here. I, I would like to just reinforce. Okay. You said that the people who bought your paintings or who buy your paintings aren't always the people that you expect to be mm -hmm. who is going to buy your painting. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And not making assumptions, I think. I think it's important to know who your target audience is, but also being open to not ruling anybody out either. Very true. So that would mean remaining open to venues that you may not have thought of. And I think that's very helpful what you did. You ended up showing. How did you end up finding that retirement home? Well, it's a very big retirement home down here, but that's the only one. You know what I'm saying? They look for things for the, the people who live there. Did you say that you saw an ad for a show down there that it was out? Yes, the I did. So that's they, how you got in? Right. They have a gallery. I knew they, because I'm, you know, I read the artsy type things and I would see they have a gallery and who's showing there and the whole bit. And it was in a call for artists type thing. Like right now, the summer is slow. So I didn't want to do July. I want to concentrate on doing something else, which I don't know what it is yet because it's still ruminating around in my head. But they look for ways to, they want to decorate, well, they want to decorate their walls when their visitors come because they'll be attracted to their living spaces over there and they'll come in there and maybe buy and live. And they did not take a percentage of the paintings. Really? 
No, they did not. I'm going to go show in that gallery. And they hung it. They have, you know, they have a committee of, you know, arts committee for the retirement home. It's a big retirement. It would have to be a big one. Yeah, when I, I mean, not a tiny one. And it's who visits them, too. I only sold one painting to someone who lived there. And men buy my art. That's when I said by whom my target audience is. And I would most likely think it's women. But it's probably 40% men. Do they buy it for women as gifts? Yes, they buy it. This one man bought it. Okay. He bought that one at that retirement home was for him or for his business. Okay. It might have been for his business because he did mention that. But yes, they do buy it for the women, the, for his wife. One guy sat beneath a painting of mine, a little girl in a blue dress. And uh, he emailed me from the place that my that little girl was showing and said, you don't know me, but blah, blah, blah. But I, I want to buy that. He wanted to do it on installments. Still, now, I did not know this man, but I Googled the heck out of him the whole bit. And he paid, sent me checks and, and he got it. And I met him and his wife and we're good friends now, everybody. But because it reminded him of what his wife was like when she was a little girl, he knew she would love it. Oh. And so he bought it for that one man. Oh, but I got to tell you another story. In the same month, why was 26, one man bought six paintings and it was one of these paintings. Now, his wife had died at the beginning of that year. So he came over our house and I showed him this painting. And I'm telling him about what it meant, how we're all connected, even though you may look like you have it all together, but everyone has these raggedy threads that hang from them that get intertwined with other people. And that we are all more alike than different, that we are, we're all humans. We all have the same DNA. And I kept on talking. And so finally he said uh, to my husband, why you tell him to be quiet so I could buy the painting? <laughs> but he ended up buying three more paintings because he wanted to give his daughters, each one of them, one of the paintings. See, his wife had passed. So some about those paintings, a painting reminded him of his wife also, and he wanted to give each one of his daughters one. Now, you've mentioned a couple times that painting, you said one of these. Do you make multiple originals then as opposed to selling yes. prints? Of this one, yes. Okay, because that's of a popular one, yes. painting. Yes. Or if I make, no, here lately I've, tr- I've started making prints, you know, maybe during COVID because you're tr- you know, trying to bring the price down. Right. So everybody, can, there's something for everybody. But when I get a print, you know what I do? And I got some prints. You see, you see those two blue ones behind me right there on the uh-huh. shelf? They're both prints because I've sold the originals. And I love them. Those are prints. But what will I do? I'll go because I love texture. My paintings are full of texture. I go in and paint over them and add. I don't know if you can see this, but you, you know what this is? This is from my palette. I peel up my palette. And I said, that's too pretty. So then I, I'll glue it onto a... Are all the works, are they all acrylic? Yes. Okay. They're all acrylic. A mixed media with some with a pencil or pens, Posca pens or something like that. But those two in the red and orange right there, they, they have not been touched yet because I haven't gone in there. So I have a hard time selling just the print. So by the time I do what I do to them, it's really upcycle painting. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But I still sell it cheaper than an original painting. Well, since you mentioned pricing too, I want to talk about that. When you talk about selling half a dozen paintings, how are you pricing your work and how do you get six sales from the same person? Do you have a system for pricing? 
Do you have a range? You know, how did you arrive at a price that moves paintings like that? That was a good month. (laughs) But but what I found with the retirement home I'm talking about, I raised my prices when I went in there. And they sold better with me raising my prices. And I I do my pricing by the square inch method. You know, I know I had first because therefore you remember I kept them for years, some of them, because I was I'm just too connected with them and I couldn't give them. I'm too emotionally invested. I put it that way, because all of my paintings are chapters in my life. So, you, you know, you mentioned to me about having a body of work. My life is my body of work. So it's like no matter even if I want to paint some landscapes or something, I could still fit that into my body of work because I'm going to put some people in there somewhere. But. My body of work is my life. So it kind of all, I can tell a story about every painting I have. I can't tell no story about a flamingo. Okay. Except it's pink. But in the retirement home, if my pricing had been too inexpensive, I don't think they would have thought they were worth much. I look at the going prices for the area for a certain size around here, and I do it by the square inch. So the problem is at what point of the I can start off like maybe at $2 because it said, you're not a real artist unless you charge an over $2 a square inch. And I read that somewhere and I took it to heart. Okay. So I do that. I do it by the square inch and the size. And at that time, I wasn't bringing the price down for the size. Like a 30 by 40 was like $3,000. And I had a couple of them and I sold them. And the other ones were, so I forgot how much that was. I think it's around 250 a square inch is what I was doing. But usually I try to stick around two to 225. And I didn't have a website the whole time I was doing all that. I had no website. So this is all based on me reading. This is all pre-COVID too, you got to remember. So I was seeing call for artists and I was seeing exhibitions. Now I did another one where I sold like maybe seven for the Sarasota Arts and Cultural Exchange, they have a lobby too. It's their lobby. And you hang art in their lobbies. And then they have meetings in, in rooms off of the lobby. So people were coming through there and they saw the paintings. And no one, you know, there's no one handling it. They had my card and my name and they would call me or email me is how I did it there. But everyone I sold to knew me too, though. That is right. There it was no strangers at part, so it's still my basic circle of people that I knew. The point is, friends don't buy your paintings. Friend, you have people who you think they want free, or they want fifty dollars, hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, or whatever. But they, oh, I want that. Can you? But they'll say, can you make it bigger? My point is, you're not going to buy it at two hundred. Make it bigger. It's going to have a bigger price on it. You know. I think you've made a really good point. And artists, I think, if they start out that way, there's a validity to sometimes doing that where there's maybe a strategic giveaway of a certain piece or something Mm -hmm. you feel called to. For me, I give away certain paintings that are for charities. Mm -hmm. But I think that especially as you progress, Mm -hmm. it's important to restrict the amount, even if you don't feel right always about charging, to restrict the amount of paintings that you give away and Mm -hmm. even donate for two reasons. One, it will hold you back and you'll find that you are working for trade. 
Kind of like mm-hmm. why I can't work in bookstores because I'll come home with 40,000 books and no paycheck. Right. right. I've worked in a bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to be aware that you've got to start acting like you're doing this for money if that's your goal. And mm-hmm. I think that it's important to get in the mindset of believing that your paintings are worth charging for and of valuing them and not stepping in your own way. I know before the show, we talked about Marcus Sheridan and how on his episode, he was talking about pricing your work in a way that no matter what that price is, first mm-hmm. arrive at what you really need to charge for that piece, mm-hmm. no matter what your pricing formula is. And then second, to present that price in a way as if you are saying, even if you don't actually say it after the price, isn't that great? So yeah, you're presenting it yeah. with confidence. I think when you give away your work too long or too many times, again, even if you have a charity, that's valid. But Mm -hmm. you can't have all your work be to charities if you intend to also make a living at doing your paintings or your sculptures or whatever it is, your mixed media, that you get in the mindset of, in order for me to present this gift to the world in a sustainable way, I deserve to be paid enough that it is valued because perception, as you said, can be. Inverse sometimes to price, Mm -hmm. and that I can survive and continue to give this gift to the world. I like that line that you just said, and that I can survive and keep doing what I'm doing and finding the joy and the wonder in what I'm doing. And I can't do that if I'm if I'm giving a piece of me. If I want to give something away, and I've done that, you know, as a gift to someone, that's different. I want to do that. Like to my yoga instructor, so I, I remember I gave her, and she has it on her wall in a yoga studio. But don't, 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 you know, don't say we both from we both from a Cleveland. Uh, you got to give me a break on this or something like that because that's up to me. And and that comes into I have a, I have difficulty with this too. Like now that I have a website, you have a price on there for your painting, but then you're in a gallery also. And the gallery is charging you a percentage of your painting. So all of your prices should be the same. That's the general opinion. But at that price, if they, they're up in their commission fee for where you're showing, say, like from 45 to 50, you go into your website and change all of those prices so that you're still getting the same amount. Do you have a, any clarity on that? Well, yeah, I think that it's important to maintain, for the sake of the gallery too, if you have gallery representation, the uniformity so that people don't, they're not tempted to circumvent the gallery because they believe they'll go to you and get that painting for 30% less because it's disloyal to the gallery in a level because they're providing all kinds of marketing on your behalf Mm -hmm. and things that they're carrying the overhead for. So really what happens is it's important to maintain your prices at the gallery prices, wherever you sell. Now, if you end up selling outside of the gallery, then that's okay as long as you're not competing with the gallery. If, the, if mm-hmm. that painting you showed me with the women on it, the group of women, if you make multiples of that, it wouldn't really be cricket, as they say, to sell it uh. for less out of your own gallery. Right. When you're selling versions of it, originals, at the gallery for the gallery price. I think it's backwards in the sense of instead of worrying that you're taking from your buyer because 
you are charging and getting the amount the gallery would get because there's that gap and you're, if you maintain your price, I think mm-hmm. your fear is you're worrying about the integrity of getting that money yourself when if you sold through the gallery, you would get less. But if I'm, if I'm reading you right, but think of it this way, it's the other way around. When you sell through the gallery, you are actually taking a hit on what you make. And so that sacrifice, if you can look at it that way, that sacrifice that you'd sacrifice when you sell out of your gallery because they are taking the overhead off your shoulders on promoting it for you and hanging it and all of those other things, the, the open hours and the public access. And so if you flip that on its head, I think it's easier to understand and explain if somebody asks you that question. Don't think of it like you're ripping off your purse and walking into your studio. Think of it as there are reasons you will make that sacrifice when you show elsewhere, but the, the price has to stay the same. Has to stay the same. And then that's good to know. And I do understand that scenario, but I'm also speaking of the scenario like it's the art center in town. So it's only up for 30 days. That's not a gallery. So right. it's up for 30 days. And so my prices are one thing on the website. I mean, I still have to deduct how much I had to pay to get into the show, you know, the jury fees and the, and the commission for them. So on that level, do you still keep the same price? Well, which way is it? Are, is the price generally you saying, is it higher in the art center? If I add their 40% on for the 30-day art center. Yeah. Whatever you're charging at the art center, I would make your price at home and consider or your home gallery, right? Whether that's a gallery you own or out of your yeah. own personal studio. Think of it this way, okay? I have my own studio here, mm-hmm. but I pay for maintenance on three domain names, which is several hundred dollars a year because I've got mm-hmm. web hosting and forwarding with them and emails attached to them. My mm-hmm. online course has its own server. You know, all of those things incur fees that add up to a a lot of overhead that I'm carrying. So, yes, I think the price needs to stay the same across the board. It causes less confusion for your collectors. Right? Right. But then it's only up for 30 days. Then you change your price back once the show is over? No, what I mean is if that painting is $500 in the art center, then it's $500 Uh if you sell it out of your home. Right. Yeah, you keep your prices high. Keep your prices according high, to you know. the venue outside, even if gotcha. it's a two-day show or a two-month show, because the overhead that you have at home or your, like I said, your own gallery, you're you carrying that on your own. It's the same thing. That's right. You're keeping the lights on in your studio. You're supplying the website and all of the overhead. If you're managing your own website, that's your time. I got you. Know. you. I yep. got you about that. I haven't heard that part. That that's way. my input. That that's, I've heard of the importance of keeping the prices across the board. If you across have a board, right. say you have a gallery that's in town and you're selling your paintings for 40% lower out of your own studio, you're probably oh. going to get a call and they're going to say, you know, you're messing up your algorithm of your pricing value because you. you're dropping your you. prices and you're lowering your equity in people's perception of the equity in your work. There you go. I, I finally understood that then because yeah. I have overhead at home also. So it should be the same as for the art center or whatever I raised it for for them. So yeah. it should be the same across the board. I think I so. got that. I finally, I finally got that. Okay. I think the key is to think in terms of not, 
I'm ripping off my customers who didn't have to go through the calorie, but I have to make sure if I'm selling it myself that I'm covering the overhead necessary to maintain my own studio and my own business here and the website and everything that's attached to it that helped you sell it. You're absolutely right. You're making a sacrifice at the gallery. You're not ripping off your customers at home. Thank you for that, Caroline. It's all that overhead, baby. (laughs) Okay, I got you. I got you. So in essence, I guess it's what I'm saying is before COVID, there were more exhibitions. So that's why I said that was a point in time. It was pre-COVID. And when COVID came, so I have a website now and I do sell on Instagram, but I do that the same way. People are attracted to me also because of what my art says. But the main thing I learned from, from doing this with you, Caroline, is that it's another word everyone uses, secret sauce. You know, what my secret sauce is. And my secret sauce is telling my story. If I can get in front of future collectors and tell my story, I can sell my paintings. Now, do you do that on your website? Do you have videos of you telling your stories? Yes, a couple, two or three, but I've got a whole lot of other stories that I've never told. Because <laughs> do you sell a lot on your website or mostly right now in person? Uh, no, that's funny. They don't come through, my, they'll look. But So I think it's important to have it. They know it's there and they look. But I've been selling still on Facebook and Instagram. And What's the difference? Are there videos on Instagram and Facebook? Yes. And I, uh, I put, you get those apps where you, in situ, where you put your paintings in a room. Yes. And so they can visualize how it would look in their space. Because the, the woman up in Michigan I was talking about before, she says she has a Brenda wall. So she'll always, and then I'll give, I do give discounts when collectors come back. Also, okay. In the whole bit, 10 or 15%. Do okay. That. that was my question. So, how do you give a discount? How much? And that's how I do that. And I tell them that. And she has a Brenda wall that she's trying to fill up as she gets bonuses and extra money and things like that. Well, she found me on Instagram. We talked about a lot of people mentioning layaway. If people buy online for you, do they make the purchase online? And if so, do you allow payments there? Or do they always come to you? beyond your website to make the, make the buy, which might mean that they're local. No, not necessarily local. It still could be in Kansas. The people that have done that, they don't buy it online. They contact me personally. How? Email. Or they okay. know me or something. And they know me from IG. That for Instagram, they know me. Because I got okay. people in Oklahoma and California they just, and I, don't, I know them because I've been developing a relationship with them online for some time. That's it. Their relationship yeah. is king. My listeners know this. There's an episode, I think it's episode 51, where there was an attempt to defraud me and it was through Etsy. And so I'm still very leery of going outside of my system, my online shopping cart or a gallery. In that Mm -hmm. it was the typical, I want to buy a painting, but can we switch to email? And then we did. And then they they sent me a check, but they overpaid. And of course, I turned it into a podcast episode. I get those emails. You know, saying, I want to buy my husband this for his anniversary. And you're in my price range of whatever it is. And uh, could you do this and this? I just delete those now or whatever, because there's some kind of spam stuff going on. I don't do it. The people who I sell to online from my website, 
I have made contact and developed a relationship with them on Instagram or Facebook. So we have talked back and forth and back and forth. So there's a trust level there. I think that's number one, that that has to happen because you don't just come out the blue and I don't know you and you say, you know, you send me an email, say, I want to buy this painting. I don't trust you then. And no, I'm not going to lay away (laughs) or install or anything. You have to be very careful online. And if if they're in a system like a shopping cart or Etsy and they want to drop back to email and they ask to step outside of the venue you're selling on, be very careful. If you don't know them, I'm going to tell my listeners to assume it is a fraudster, Mm -hmm. a fraudster, a a fraud attempt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. When that person from Kansas then contacts you, do you, how do you go about the payments? Is it money up front? No, but sometimes she wants to install, she wants to do an installment and she'll do it. But most times when people do that, the last four or five times, they'll send the whole thing. And you know them, like I'll you said. Them. Yeah. And they'll send the whole thing because I'll, oh, because maybe I'll say it too. Now, I don't know if that the guy we talked about who said, say your price and that's it. Yeah. He didn't mention anything about installments, did he? No, he was talking about Marcus. Yeah. Mark, yeah. Marcus was talking about public speaking at that time. But he's, oh, yeah, that's right. But he's a marketing professional. So he didn't cover that. But I think if anything is outside of driving distance, it's got to be money up front unless you really right. know that person. You, know, you really know that person. And I've sweated a couple of times about that, but it came through. It came, and I said, oh, Lord, I'm, here's my trusting self. And I knew the person, but she moved to No, she's in Colorado. That's when she was. So no, I do. It's not someone that I don't have any relationship with. We have a relationship, whether it's online or someone that I knew in person. Right. And another thing for our listeners to know is not just waiting when you do make a sale. See, now, if you use Etsy or another platform, a lot of them will hold the money for a little while first. Don't just assume if it clears, if the check clears, say they send you a cashier's check, which is also can be a red flag. If it's a check situation in any form, it's not just that two days or so to get the check to clear. It's going to be 10 days after that, if it's a fraudulent payment method, that it's going to get kicked back to the bank. So when I got a cashier's check from that buyer, I called the bank whose name was on the check to verify because I was suspicious. And they said, Mm -hmm. no, 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 do not cash that check. But what they told me was, had I cashed it, naturally, my bank will give me, say, $200 upfront credit until Uh 24 hours, and then they'll they'll cash it. But after that, there's like a 10-day delay. That 10-day delay is what will actually tell them if the check cleared. They're they're giving you the benefit of the doubt as the account holder of the bank. Mm -hmm. But she said, if it gets kicked back to them, they will now come back to you 10 days later and say, Brenda, that check didn't clear. You need to give us back that money. And if you spent it, or if they think that you knew that it wasn't going to clear, they can come after you for fraud. No, I did not know that. So it's important. And that's, I think it's episode 51. It's right before my interview with the former director of cybercrime at the FBI uh, in Arizona. Yeah. And he talks about this topic too. But 51 was about my experience in somebody trying to defraud me. So that's important to know. If you're going to sell online, it's best to go through a shopping cart system, PayPal, something that's going to protect you from these kind of scammers who will say, I'll send your cashier's check. I have two cashier's checks on my wall framed and people say to me, oh, is that your first sale? And I tell them, no, that's the first time somebody tried to defraud me online. 
and I turned it into a podcast episode so it could help my listeners. Funniest thing about it, if you look at them, same check number. They sent it twice. Huh. Because I, I questioned the validity of the check and I said, I can't work with you. And instead of rectifying the situation or proving they weren't fraudulent, they did one last ditch effort and they did it again and mailed me another check. Same amount, same check number. Same amount, same check number. Yep. Obviously fraud. So I have a, I'll put it in the show notes. It's hysterical. No, I'll have to remember that. I'll have to remember that. And I have a a fraud alert checklist on my website. You can find it downloadable from episode 51 so that you can see the things I encountered as I was discovering that I was being frauded, how I figured it out and tips to protect yourself. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for coming on the show. I'm so glad I got to meet you. I love your inspirational work. You are, you're like this firestorm of creativity. I would like you to wrap us up with what's on the horizon for you and what's your best advice for our listeners to get the message of their work out and get the work out there. I'm going to start with the last thing that you said about getting the message of your art out there. It's finding your niche and finding your people because you could have 58,000 followers online and you could have 100,000 likes, but those are likes and those are followers. They are not all your people. You have to find the people that resonate with you by showing what's in your heart and what's in your mind and what's in your body. And by listening to you, because listening to yourself, when I say listening to you, because I've noticed, I thought about this as I was preparing for the show with you, is that when I first started painting, I think I was looser because I had not watched so many other people paint and think, well, maybe I should be painting like that. Maybe I should do this like that. Or, and then you told me about the eyes today. I have one painting up there where one eye is up there and one eye is down there, but there's a reason it's like that too. So I don't necessarily have to go back and put my eyes back up there. But the point is to trust yourself. And, and I found from watching Facebook and Instagram specifically is that you lose, and I may have heard this on your show also about the mistakes you're making end up being part of your style and part of your honesty of who you are and how you paint. And if you love what you're doing and your work resonates with a certain niche of people, what more could you want? Everybody can't paint and don't want to paint a flamingo. This wraps up my interview with painter Brenda Robinson. Don't forget to check out the video of this interview and see some of Brenda's work in the show notes at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 78. Don't forget my portrait painting masterclass, The Portrait Code, is now available at passionatepainteracademy.com. I created this course for all the painters who tell me they can paint other things, but they just can't paint portraits. This course shows you how to approach painting portraits to get a great start, even if you're scared. And it shows you how to assess your progress and get back on track when you've gotten in the weeds. Learn more at passionatepainteracademy.com. Until next time, go make something.